you would please, and turn in them to the book of Proverbs. Today we've got to cut right to the chase. Uh, normally I've been doing a little introductory proverb or thought or quote, but I cut it out for sake of time today so that we're done before the meal tonight. <clears throat> so far, after a Sunday directed to graduates about the important principles as they leave their homes and establish their own lives, we've spent time looking at primarily three other big themes within Proverbs. Our words both are life-injuring and life-giving uh, words and how God can use them because they are so powerful. Our friendships and what they are to be built on and how to have a wise friendship with someone and then last week, that God's wisdom excels in humility and is squelched in pride. The fact that our own Lord so humbled himself that he came to do what he did on the cross should make us, his followers, his imitators, the most humble people that the world knows. God opposes and works against the pride remaining in us and loves and graces and blesses the humility that he develops. I didn't think of this until the middle of the night last night. It was appropriate last Sunday. James says this in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his or her works in the meekness or the humility of wisdom. Now today we turn our thoughts to what Proverbs has to say about marriage and the word that God uses several times, particularly about a woman and a wife, is excellence and how that is built on the foundation of the fear of the Lord, how a spouse is a gift that we are to rejoice in every day of our lives so that we faithfully uh, steer away from the forbidden that a home is built up or torn down by the people within it. And that when Proverbs are lived out wisely, the home and the lives they produce profoundly bless many. Several introductory thoughts because I can never just dive right in. If you are not married, for whatever life circumstances that may be, please don't dismiss this sermon as irrelevant to you. Several reasons. God may have marriage in your future, and that's not the time to suddenly start listening. We're all required within the body to know all of the responsibilities that all of us have, whatever life conditions we're in, and to hold each other accountable to those. So this is a day in which we learn more about marriage, in which all of us need to hold all who are married to that standard. Also, most of the qualities that are espoused for husbands and wives are qualities that equally apply to singles who are followers of Christ. Second random thought from Rob is he's probably driving, lying awake at night, or somewhere in a meeting that he doesn't want to be in. It's been years, actually, since we last had a sermon on marriage and because it is such a constant challenge, that's really not a good thing. 
So I'm thankful for Proverbs bringing us to this today. Third random thought. No matter how long we have been married and how good our marriage has been, we must never be so foolish as to think our own marriage can't or won't go bad at some point for some reason. That just seems inconceivable to us right now. Alistair Begg, the first act of stupidity is to live as if somehow or another the rules concerning the demise of marriage do not apply to me. And if our marriages are to manifest Christ, to display him and his covenant love, and none of us are doing that perfectly, we all have work to do in that regard. Actually, there are probably more marriages struggling in this body than you realize or even I know. Could be someone sitting in a pew with you today. We tend to mask these issues well in public, but in private, there's a lot of pain. Fourth random thought. Again, as I said last week, Though there are not a ton of Proverbs that actually say husband, actually say wife, actually say marriage, almost every Proverb has some sort of application to something within marriage. So read the whole book with that lens as well. And then finally, many of the Proverbs today speak primarily of the wife or the woman, much more so than the husband in terms of the direct ones. But I would put forth to you that that is not a gender-limiting thing, whether it's positive or negative. For example, when we get to Proverbs 31 and the glories of the excellent woman and wife are put forth, uh, certainly many of those apply to men too. Or, on the negative side, all five uh, proverbs that denounce or warn us of quarrelsomeness in marriage, all five speak of it in the female gender. And yet, it is absolutely clear to any of us that that is not limited at all to a woman. So perhaps part of God's emphasis in Proverbs is that while God charges men with the heaviest responsibility to have a God-honoring home, he certainly upholds the wife and the woman as having a huge influence on its culture, sometimes more than the man does, sometimes in absence of the man. So a woman must never think her sins are not as harmful or her righteousness not as beneficial. So we live in a culture that is annihilating marriage, at least in their attempts to do so. All kinds of stats that we could look at, but one I came across was that in 1972, 72% of American adults were married. Now it's about half, and somewhat the same, uh, conversely, on people living together, that 50 years ago it was pretty unusual or uncommon, and now about half of people are, who are in the same residence are not married to each other. So, Tim Keller reminds us of this as we go into Proverbs. Unless you are able to look at marriage through the lens of Scripture instead of through your own fears or romanticism, he takes both ends of those, 
each can be fleshly, through your particular experiences about marriage, so many of us saw so much dysfunction of marriage, or through your culture's narrow or very corrupted, I'm adding, perspectives, worsening by the year, you won't be able to make intelligent or wise decisions about your own marital future. So God says in Proverbs 23, 3 to 4, as kind of an overarching introductory picture for marriage, it's by wisdom that a house or a home or a marriage is built. It's by understanding that it's established or solidified even more. And it's by knowledge then, as, as you grow in the knowledge of God's intention for marriage, the rooms of those lives or that family, that household, are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So Father, this morning as we come to what you have to say in the book of Proverbs about marriage, we pray for us as Jesus did for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, that you would sanctify us by your truth because your word is truth. So please do that today. Make these Proverbs living and active inside of us, not just for this hour, but long beyond it, working, working, working to sanctify and transform and change us. May your words be sharp and pierce in order to divide even our souls and our spirits, discerning our deepest motives, desires, thoughts, and attitudes, and doing the surgery we each need. Please work for your glory's sake in each life, single or married, and in each marriage and household, we pray. In your name, amen. So, point number one, or kind of summary, subcategory number one is that a spouse is a gift of God's grace that we are to rejoice in all the days of our life, and that helps us faithfully flee what Proverbs often speaks of as the forbidden, what is forbidden from married people. So Proverbs 31.10, way late in the book, but I want to use it as an introductory thought of an excellent wife, and we could say an excellent husband, who can find. It's a hard search. It's one we must not be careful in, diligent in, and not ignore potentially serious issues or character flaws in just because they're handsome or fun or pretty or whatever. An excellent one is one who is wise, who is godly. The word Proverbs often uses is righteous, holy. And it's rare. That's part of God's point. There aren't very many of them. So be careful in your search and looking. And if God gifts you, realize that it is a gift to you. It is not your earning of it. As great as some of you may think, particularly you men, it's a miracle someone wants to spend their life with you. It is a miracle of God. Certainly is in my life. So acknowledge that to God humbly and appreciate what an incredible, incredible gift that he doesn't give to everyone. And appreciate it. It'll shape the way you do your marriage if you keep that at the forefront. Remember that the incredible person you may have married, others did the diligent work on her or him for you. 
So now it's what do you do with that gift? Proverbs 19.14 adds that a prudent wife, and prudent is very much like wise. It means discerning a careful decision maker, that when decisions are not easy, when there's complication, complexity, or things are clouded or confusing, a prudent wife or husband is one who helps walk through those things. And the reminder here is your parents can give you a lot of things, but they cannot buy you or give you a prudent wife. God alone is the maker and the giver of such people. So pray for that. Now, Proverbs 31, almost the last verse in the whole book, verse 30, speaks of either three routes, three directions, three paths that women or men may try to be excellent, three goals they may focus on for developing for marriage or in marriage. And the choices are charm, beauty, or fear of the Lord. So charm is a woman or a man mastering the art of being pleasant and likable. But God warns us it's deceitful because it's a surface activity. It's a behavior you put on, but not necessarily coming from the heart. Charm is not necessarily godliness. Don't mistake it for that. It can simply be an act that's put on in public, but will eventually wear off when the hard times come. Second option is beauty. A woman focusing, or a man, on her face, skin, body, to fit the world's fleeting, ever-changing definition of beautiful. Such a merciless, arbitrary standard that so many Americans are chasing and giving so much of their money and time to. And God warns us, it's vain. There's no spiritual gain or worth or profit in that. Old commentator Leighton said, the soul fallen from God has lost its true worth and beauty. Therefore, it basely descends to these mean or lowly things, charm and beauty, to serve and dress the body and make it and take with it unworthy borrowed ornaments. It does not know that he alone is the beauty and ornament of the soul and his spirit and grace, his rich attire. A friend of mine, a pastor, used to often quip that if the barn needs painting, then paint it. But maybe the God, God's point in, there's no use painting it if the structure is deteriorating and collapsing. Third option that we give our lives to, and there could be other ones in here besides charm and beauty, money, intelligence, success, popularity, but God holds up now the ideal is a woman or a man who fears the Lord, who esteems him reverently. This is the driving theme of Proverbs for all wisdom, that a marriage that is going to be honoring to God, that's going to be excellent, will start at the very foundation, built on the fear of the Lord, not on physical attraction, not on personality attraction, but on the fear of the Lord. That's what's to be praised, honored, and esteemed. In Proverbs 11.20, it doesn't say a wife here, but speaking, giving us a word picture of God's value on discretion and the smallness or the ugliness of just focusing on physical beauty. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. 
or prudence or wisdom. The physical attractiveness, attractiveness is such a tiny factor of the whole pig. And if it's all a pig, except for that gold ring, you lose in the end. One more proverb that I think fits within this sub-theme, and it's Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Now the context of this we'll look at on the Sunday that we talk about sexual purity and immorality, but here's the charge to particularly a husband uh, within his marriage covenant. Let your fountain or your marriage, and the idea of a fountain is it's water that's contained and recycled freshly over and over, and so a marriage is to operate. The water, the gift that God gives of your spouse is what you are enjoy over and over and over and over and over, living faithfully within the boundaries that the covenant, the fountain, creates, and not by any forays outside of it. Physical adultery, mental adultery, visual adultery or unfaithfulness, or emotional. Instead, he calls us to rejoice in the wife or the spouse of your youth. As you get older and older and marriage gets further and further along, don't let that rejoicing die out. Let her body, her womanhood, fill you at all times with delight. Be, interesting word, be intoxicated always in her love. Just be drunk by it so you're not even attracted to anything else. And the next verse says, why be intoxicated with a forbidden woman? Why? So all life long, keep fanning the flames of affection and intimacy in the gift that God has given you. No married people should be any happier or thrilled with their spouse than Christ followers with the one that he gives each of us. For when our rejoicing subsides and decreasing, the seeds of temptation sprout. Johnny Ardravanus, failure to find and enjoy the gifts that God has given us is the garden where bitterness, pride, and ingratitude, and I'm going to add lust, are grown. Far too many, a husband or wife, has spit in the face of God's favor by chasing a lie that they will find greater satisfaction and happiness in the forbidden rather than in the excellent, prudent, not perfect, but God-given spouse they have. Second big category within this is that a home or marriage is always either being built up or torn down. A spouse is always crowning the other one or shaming the other one. God just shows these extremes. First of all, Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife, so not your average one, an outstanding one, one God has honed and given you, is the crown of her husband. She adorns him. She makes him far more attractive than he would be otherwise. The most honorable thing about a man is his excellent wife. Not his achievements, not his job, not his money, not his toys, not his possessions. And so equally, an excellent husband crowns his wife as well. But the, God's point here is a godly woman can bring out so much good in a man that wouldn't have come out perhaps otherwise. But the flip side of the proverb is that there are wives who bring shame to their husbands. Not because they aren't perfect, but because they're content to be foolish in certain ways or to continue in certain sins 
rather than repenting of them. And God describes that as being like rottenness in one's bones, meaning it is undermining the whole of that person, weakening them, making them unhealthy. Scripture doesn't say this is any grounds for divorce. Let's not misunderstand. It's that it will make both people ultimately unhappy and probably miserable. Very similarly, Proverbs 14 opens with the wisest of women, doesn't limit it to just wives, builds her house, the home where she and her husband are forming their marriage, their family, and living within their community. And then we now know, also living within the church, are an incredible blessing or building up that God uses wise women to to build up and develop those. But folly, the foolish woman, with her own hands, tears it down, makes it unhealthy, makes it toxic, makes it a hard place to be, fills it with sadness. Everything a man or woman is doing, inside the home or outside of it, is either slowly likely imperceptibly, making the marriage better and better or making it worse and worse. Doesn't mean that we set out to do that. We just subtly dismantle it one day at a time by the choices that we make to be a certain way and to not change and to refuse to turn from things that are foolish and sinful and hurting. This kind of person often blames others But God says the blame lies on that own individual's hands. It's a sad and painful thing to watch. Most of us have seen it either in our own marriages or in our friends or in our family. Now, there's a particular way in which a home is shamed or torn down that God now highlights in Proverbs. It isn't until well over halfway into the book that he first brings it up. But once he does, and that's quarrelsomeness, then he begins to really hammer how hugely important peace is to him in a marriage. And once again, I want to emphasize that this is as much on a man and our husband as it is on a wife. Don't be misled by that. First of all, God speaks of quarreling in Proverbs 19.13 as a continual dripping of rain. Lots and lots of definitions or synonyms here of quarreling that uh, I'll say too fast, but hopefully will be helpful for you to fill in what may all be in that word. Contentious, argumentative, complaining, crabby, critical, crotchety, easily crossed, negative, fault-finding, nitpicking, a contrarian, nagging bigger summary not a peace seeker or a peacemaker but a peace disruptor would rather bring something up and hash it out than let it go and spats quarrels may not seem bad to a couple they may say at least we're not swearing at each other yelling at each other throwing things at each other or hitting each other as if those are the standards to go by but a god of peace who died to bring peace on earth, starting in our homes, 
with the gospel of peace sees these spats very, very differently from a couple who argues a lot. Now, a lot of this comes down to just how different men and women are. And those differences either become sanctifying, making us wiser as we appreciate the differences and work our way through them, but they can become problematic, leading to increasing conflict and growing distance from each other. In fact, Proverbs 19.13 uses the continual word, like it's ongoing, it's a pattern of tension that's happening between a couple. And just a reminder here that this is what God said would be part of the curse that would affect marriages directly, as well as many other things, is that a wife's desire would be contrary to her husband's. Now, the list we can potentially argue about is endless, right? It can be big things, but so often it's seemingly unimportant or trivial things, but takes an incredible toll. Very quickly, the other Proverbs that speak of this twice are identical Proverbs. There's a few of those, not too many of them, where God has the exact same wording and plops it in two different places in the book, so we see it more than once and we don't have a house, to, most of us don't have a house top we might go live on. But think deck, think garage, think something in our setting and context that might work here. Better to go hide in the corner of that place than to be in the house, in the home, where you have to rub shoulders with someone who is quarrelsome. That's how miserable it can be. But Proverbs 21 19 takes it even further. It's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome. And now he adds a second damaging characteristic, fretful. Easily scared, lots of anxiety, worry, worry, worry about everything. Never really relaxing, resting, trusting. Always on edge. Spouse who's always unsettled, never really at peace. There's just friction, friction, friction in her spirit or his spirit, and it's often then carried over to the other. Let's add that often the spouse, the husband, who doesn't husband well, may actually push his wife toward quarreling, doesn't justify it or make it okay, but we need to be careful within marriage that we're not just pointing the finger at the other without owning what might be our own responsibility. One more proverb that makes quarrelsomeness even more troubling is 27, 15, and 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her, to get her to change, or him, to change that pattern, to really fully repent of that kind of a, a way of doing marriage is like trying to restrain the wind or grasp oil in one's right hand. So, very sobering warnings about it. And the longer we go in this pattern, the harder it is to repent and turn, the more unhealthy our marriage becomes. But an excellent or noble wife, coming back to our first Proverbs in this, builds up a home and crowns one's spouse. Third, and finally, when Proverbs are wisely applied, and I'm gonna say all of them, the whole book, the home and lives they produce, the marriages they produce, profoundly bless many. The biggest and best known may have been where your mind took you right away when you heard that this was about marriage. 
section of Proverbs on marriage is Proverbs 31, which is a climactic conclusion at the end of the book that is really saying, this is what a proverbed person is like. It personifies the other 900 Proverbs into these 20 or so, uh, 22, because of the Hebrew alphabet, an embodiment of them all. So verses 10 to 31 of Proverbs 31 are an acrostic poem in the Hebrew. So 22 lines that each begin with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet meant to facilitate memorizing. But, because I'll forget to say it later, keep in mind that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, beginning to end. We will talk about him embodying these as well. Interesting thing is that Ruth in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew order uh, of the scriptures, Ruth is right after this. So it's God's way of saying, now let me show you a real life person and how this is lived out in real life. Ruth 3.11 says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy or an excellent or a godly woman. Now, notice what's absent from this chapter. No references to her looks. No references to her personality in terms of charm. No references to charisma, intelligence, age, weight, body shape, education, degrees, size of home, size of car, the things Americans get caught up in. A godly woman crowns her husband, her family, those in her household, her parents, her church, her friends, her community. Now, Can this passage overwhelm a woman and discourage her? Absolutely. But let's appreciate that God does show us his standard and he gives us his spirit and his word to work and often a godly spouse along the way to work toward these things. Matthew Henry says God is just putting a mirror up that's helping a a woman to adorn herself in the ways that God sees as true beauty. So we've done verses 10 to thir- and 30, but we'll quickly now, briefly touch on all of these others, certainly not giving them the weight and attention that they could have. First of all, so this is a subcategory within this broader third area. The value of a wife's blessing to her husband is immeasurable. So first of all, in verse 11, that she has lived in such a way that the heart of her husband trusts in her. He crowns her with his trust and his confidence. He has no reservations, no misgivings, no uncertainty. In fact, recognizes she's probably going to do it and make it better than he could or would. No sense of, I will have to do it. I don't trust you. And I would suggest that his trust is foundational to the way that she is in all of the other parts of this chapter. Goes on. He will have no lack of gain. She just keeps making his life, his home, himself better and better, making him a better man, verse 12, day by day, all the days of her life, doing him good, not harming him, not stunting his spiritual maturing or what God has called him to do, but fostering it. And then one more down in verse 23, and I recognize there's, down 28 and 29 deal with a husband as well, but we'll save that one. But 23, 
Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So where is her husband? You might ask as you read verses 10 to 22, or particularly 13 to 22. He's not out golfing. He's not sitting with the boys at a tavern. He's at the city gates among the elders. He's doing ministry. He's caring for people. He's serving within his community. He's being a good citizen. Um, Yeah, and again, if you think of the story of Ruth, this is Boaz. Behind, or my preference, beside, every spouse who is leading well, who is, has a reputation that's great, is a spouse who quite possibly is doing even more to make that individual crowned that way. Second subcategory within this, a wiser, excellent woman or man blesses her home with her hard work. Both her hands and her head, her smarts, her ingenuity, her diligence, her prudence. So verses 13 to 24 almost exclusively deal with this daily diligence and all kinds of ways that it's expressed. I think verse 17 is a good summary. It's tucked kind of a third of the way through it. But let me just pull it out at the front and say, here's what she's doing with all of her life. She's dressing herself with strength, with the strength of Christ, and making her arms or her body, the things that God's calling her to do, strong. So she's not backing down. She's not a pampered princess. She's not a self-imposed diva. She that expects others to serve her. And now we get into the, into the nitty-gritty in verses 13 and on of all that she does. And certainly, finding food, as verses 13, 14, and 15 all allude to, particularly 14 and 15, shopping, going out and getting the daily needs, was certainly much more challenging in their lives than in ours. But again, I want to just point out, for those of you that may feel defeated by this, she's not doing everything. There's no mention of making meals. There's no mention of cleaning. Husbands, take note. (laughs) Rob, take note. There's no reference to some of those things. But equally, she's not sitting around reading, watching shows and binging on them, looking at all kinds of things to decorate and remodel, and ordering from Amazon every day. Goes on. She's buying fields, considering those things, planting vineyards, improving the, 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 the home and the household. She's seeing profit in that. She's willing to work, stay up late. She sews and does those things even though she has maidens that can do them. She provides for her household and clothes them well. She covers the, the bedding. Her clothing herself is fine linen. She makes them, sells them. All of those things are all wrapped up in there. So verse 25 and verse 27 are both really good summaries of her. Strength and dignity are really her clothing. That's the way God sees her clothes. That's the way Christ has clothed her so that she's able to laugh or feel a peace or not be fretful of what is to come. And then 27, she looks well to the way. So many, so many ways. Phenomenal, amazing She tends to them all, wisely balancing them all. And then two traits that we skipped over that are worth pointing out individually. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to the needy. She is compassionate. She cares. Her home is not her only circle of concern and influence. 
She's actively ministering to particularly the needy. And then wherever she is, in the home and out, she is opening her mouth with wisdom. What comes out of her mouth is not slander and gossip and criticism and quarrelsomeness, but wisdom and kindness, not only in her actions, but in her life-giving words. And this chapter is culminated then with the call of God to bless and honor such a woman, that no human being should just take that for granted. No child should ever take for granted an amazing mother. So, first thing is, her children ought to, and they ought to have seen her dad, their dad do it first. Her children, especially if there's no dad in the home, still rise up, call her blessed, let her know what a blessing she is, delineate those things, tell her. And then the husband also, not because, oh, the kids did it, so I better, but modeling it and trumping that even, say, oh, there's a lot of excellent women, but, but you surpass them all. God couldn't have given me a better wife or woman. You are the perfect one for me. This is a man who's realizing marriage is not primarily about him. It's about them and about her and about Christ. And that his task is to not hold his wife back, making him, her serve him, but fostering the beauty, the grace, and the strength that Christ has developed in her. Two quotes don't fit perfectly here, but I wanted to cram them in. Ray Ortland, God wants to fill our homes and our churches with this beautiful wisdom, where men are not passive, but overtly cultivating the excellence of their wives, and those women are thriving. And Ortland then speaks specifically to us men, husbands. How you really see God, not what you're supposed to believe about God, but what you really believe will show up in how you treat your wife. And then Tim Keller with a longer quote, but I love this word picture. Here's what it means to fall in love. And I would, that first wording I'd say, here's what it means to be married and have an excellent marriage. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now, look at you. Each spouse should see the great things that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse should then give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision that day when you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Proverbs closes the whole book with a charge that when we come to these excellent people, we are to give them the fruit of their hands. In other words, bring back, show them the rewards. Bless her for blessing you. And let her works praise her in the gates, outside the home, in the whole community. So it's just good here to ask, particularly husbands and children, 
Are you doing this? Not just on Mother's Day, birthdays, anniversaries. Not just by flowers and exotic trips. But by consistently appreciating, acknowledging, and expressing her fear of the Lord, her excellence, her holiness and godliness in the great work. And I just want to say that we have many amazing number of excellent women in our body. We men, we have a lot to live up to, but we praise God for you women. You bless us so much. We thank you. Your fear of the Lord is beautiful. And we don't want to wait until your funeral when you will not hear it to hear that you are a precious gift to us. Thank you. We pray you will not grow weary in doing good. Finally, we're going to get done before supper. We always want to try and tie the theme that we're on back to Christ and the gospel. Though these Proverbs are written over a thousand years, some of them before Jesus came, there's such a connection. And maybe no more obvious of all the themes we've looked at than this one, particularly because it's stated so explicitly in Ephesians 5. And I'm not going to read this whole passage. I just wanted you to see visually all the references to Christ within this, that it's really much more about Christ in a marriage than it is about a husband or a wife, and that a wife is to imitate Christ and she's to imitate the church in that submissive spirit, and a husband is to imitate Christ in the loving way that he guides and cares for his wife and nourishes her, always seeking to sanctify and wash her. Lots of thoughts in there. Mega sermons within that. But that's Proverbs, all of Proverbs, but Proverbs 31, we might say particularly, brought into even greater clarity when Christ comes into the picture. So John Bunyan says to the husbands, be a husband who by the way he treats his wife preaches Christ to her every day. And Moody, looking at it the other way, if a man doesn't treat his wife well, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. And finally, one more way that we can see Christ is, and if you would, turn to Proverbs 31. Maybe you're already there. And I, I'm not going to make the New Testament evidence for all of these things, but I think on almost every case, we could quote scriptures that would delineate these things. But here is our bridegroom in Proverbs 31. Here is Christ, a thousand years before he showed up on earth as Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, he is, only now you're not thinking woman and bride, but you're thinking bridegroom. He is the only truly perfect and excellent bridegroom, more precious to us than any worldly treasure. Verse 11, we can trust him fully, for he is completely trustworthy and faithful. We will never lack gain or good from him. Verse 12, he does us only good all the days of our lives, never once unkindly harmful to us ever. Verse 13, his nail-scarred hands always work for us, patiently, gently, beautifully, letting us rest in them. 14 and 15, he prepares a table for us to feast in fellowship with him. 
as well as gives us our daily bread, meeting all of our needs. Verse 16, he is the vine, we are his branches, and when we abide in him, he bears much beautiful fruit, fruit of his nature through us. 17, he's our strong warrior, armor of us, protecting us against evil and the evil one, making us strong. 18 and 19, everything he does is for our profit and good. He works tirelessly 24-7, even while we sleep on our behalf. Verse 20, he is kind to the poor, including us, and the poor in spirit making us rich in him. Verses 21 and 22, he clothes our nakedness in his beautiful garments, scarlet garments of righteousness, and our clothes, and clothes our bodies abundantly. 23, he's our all-wise God who counsels us in the night and day as we wait at his gates. 25, he is clothed in dignity and honor, filling us with hope for the future and joy in what he promises. 26, Every word of his tongue is wise, kind, pure, powerful, helpful, life-giving. 27, he looks so well to the ways of his household, the household of God, the followers of God, his children, never lazy, idle, indifferent, unwilling. 28 and 29, as his children and his bride, we are to rise up and praise him as we have been this morning, but every day for his all-surpassing supremacy, so verse 30, let's give him the work of his hands that he may be praised before all. What a phenomenal bridegroom we have. What an incredible, incredible joy heaven will be in this. By wisdom, a house is built. By understanding God and his ways, it's established. By knowledge of him, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you again for your word, for the book of Proverbs, for the powerful things you tell us. But I pray, God, it will boil down now to our marriages and our lives, even for singles in terms of their own character, that you would keep honing and refining these things, that we would grow ever more excellent, righteous, holy in your eyes, and that all of that would be a sweet, blessing and aroma of Christ to all who know us and all who encounter us. So please keep refining, renewing, restoring our homes and our marriages for you, I pray. In your glorious son's name, who is coming one day as our bridegroom. Amen.